Welcome to Monday's Richie Allen Show. Hope you had a great weekend. Thanks for joining me. Reach out to the programme between now and 7 o'clock via the website or via the app for the programme, the Richie Allen Show app. Promises to be a very interesting show. It's the BBG, not the BBC. This is your Richie Allen Show, live from the magnificent city of Salford. It's the Richie Allen Show. Broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. And now, here's your host, Richie Allen. Now, there may be, at this moment in time, thousands and thousands of videos of underage sex trafficking victims on the website Pornhub, which is one of the most popular websites in the world. I believe it's in the top ten. Right, that's staggering. The company doesn't appear to care very much, even though there is a class action against the company emanating from California. To speak about this, and it's deadly serious, Layla Micklewaite will join the programme a bit later on. She's the founder and CEO of the Justice Defence Fund and the founder of the Global Traffic Trafficking Hub Movement, which is supported by millions of people around the world. She's a leading expert in the field. We'll talk about that in the second hour. Before that, though, an old friend of the programme returns today. Stuart Waiton is a criminologist and an academic at Abertay University in Dundee. He's also a journalist. These days, he wears many hats. He's the chairperson of the Scottish Union for Education. And they believe that teaching children that they have unconscious bias around racism is a dangerous thing. Uh, they believe that a seemingly progressive and tolerant approach to education ends up as a new caring type of authoritarianism where only one view, the view of racist white children and parents, is taught as fact. This is very important. They've been writing about this on their Substack Scottish Union for Education. Stuart Waiton will be talking to me this hour. So it is going to be busy. And I look forward to hearing your thoughts on all of these issues and more between now and the end of the programme. Let's kick off with the UK Health Security Agency. I say it every time. It sounds ominous, doesn't it? I say it every time. You can yawn. I bore myself dystopian. Well, it's recommended bringing forward the offer of COVID booster shots to the elderly by a week because of a brand new variant, or scariant as some have dubbed them. Uh, Professor Susan Hopkins, who heads up the UK Health Security Agency, a ghoul in this presenter's opinion, a ghoul who works for Imperial College London, told all to Good Morning Britain on ITV this morning what's going on, why the need to bring forward the offer. Bringing forward the vaccines today because of the new BA 2.86 variant that was detected. Because of the new BA 2.86 variant. Detected a number of weeks ago. It's a highly precautionary measure and it's there to boost the immunity and prevent hospitalisations and severe illness for those most at risk. And those are the over 65s, particularly those in adult social care and care homes. uh, And that starts today for those groups. Um, Then those in clinical risk groups, so those who people who have been identified as being immunosuppressed or having other risk factors for severe disease. 
And finally, those people who live with those individuals who are um, uh, in clinical risk groups. And we would ask all of those people to come forward when they're called. Come forward when you're called to Susan Hopkins. Ed Balls, married to your woman, Shadow Justice Sec- Shadow Home Secretary, Yvette Cooper, Labour. Ed Balls used to be a Labour front bencher. He's presenting, I know, I know, every time I say that too, I shake my head. Will Ed Balls say to Susan Hopkins, come on, love, pull the other one. You've stretched this now as far as it can go, right, with your scariance, right? What does Ed Balls say? And... It- uh, sorry, is the plan to um, also bring forward the date for the availability of the vaccine for other groups? Will the over 50s be brought forward too? Ah, Ed Balls, the politician pretending to be a journalist on ITV. Of course he didn't ask her, are you fucking mad woman? Are you crazy, you ghoul? No, he didn't. He asked her, when will everybody else be getting it? What did Susan Hopkins say? So we're not recommending vaccine routinely for the over 50s, between 50 and 65, unless you're in a clinical risk group. So if you're in a clinical risk group um, from the age of uh, six months, uh, you will be uh, offered vaccine. Six months. Did he take her up on this? If you are considered to be vulnerable from aged six months you'll be offered the jab did ed balls take this on and what is the reason for that did he fuck is that because there aren't enough vaccines is it that there is a financial constraint is it you think it's not good for us to be taking these vaccines because as i understand it in america um, the american president is saying that all americans um are to be given the vaccine again um over the coming months why in america but not here in britain wow So first of all, we look at the individuals who are most at risk of severe disease and hospitalisation and we prioritise vaccine for those. Um, That's based on the same methodology as we do for flu vaccine, for example. Um, So we are prioritising vaccine for those at most risk of severe disease and hospitalisation. So many people in clinical risk groups and in the over 65s, that's about 27 million people in our population uh, and we're recommending that those people come forward. 27 million and? So if you're in a clinical risk group, from the age of uh, six months, uh, you will be uh, offered vaccine. Six months. Six months. You'll be offered the vaccine because God knows kids don't get enough jabs as it is, do they? I'm an agnostic slash atheist. I don't know what I am, but I've got a very active imagination. If God exists, I see him as a Hugo Drax type. That's how God would look in, in my fantasy. Telling Chang, Mr. Chang, Look after Susan Hopkins. See that some harm comes to her. But not really. Because Susan, God love her, the Irish woman working for Imperial College London, is one in a very long line of useful idiots. Isn't she? Let's leave. I mean, you, uh, share, share this with me if you, if you choose or if you like. Are you in a family where you have a 65-year-old or a 70-year-old and they will be offered this job? Are you doing anything about that? Now, don't feel guilty if you're not. I'm not trying to make. I'm not trying to put it on you. But are you speaking to those people and giving them, you know, links, sharing links with them? Not to me, because I don't know anything about medicine. Don't uh, take any advice I give you about medicine. But are you sharing links to the very many men and women in academia and in frontline medicine who are saying you shouldn't have these jabs? So if you've got an older relative who might be coming forward to get this booster jab, get your booster, are you going to them and saying, listen, have a listen to Bacardi, have a listen to, we could name them over and over again, right? Okay. Supermarkets like Co-op, uh, the most commonly bought, 
co-op particularly, apparently, are locking up the most commonly bought products because they're being shoplifted. Thatcher's Britain. Uh, no. Uh, the cost of living crisis, I don't know. But the most commonly bought things, the strangest of things, are being put behind lock and key in supermarkets because of the shoplifting epidemic sweeping the nation. And James O'Brien, James O'Brien, that's the man who um, works for LBC Radio. He's absolutely flabbergasted at this and he can't get his head around it. I'm looking now at, at Nivea skin cream. Nivea skin cream. Being in a security box in a supermarket in North London, a co-op store in North London. Sun- why, why is there an increase in the stealing of Nivea skin cream? Sun cream. Sun, sun cream. Sun cream. In- sun cream. Sun cream is being robbed, says James O'Brien. In a security box. Again, at a co-op. The co-op seems to have particular problems. I'm looking at a, a joint of pork in a security box in a branch of Iceland. And- well, that makes more sense. Pork is expensive. All meat is expensive now and maybe if people are really struggling financially maybe they might be more inclined to rob the meat than the sun cream i don't know that would make sense not just having a tag on it but they're now in like locked boxes like you sometimes have alcohol in high-end like gray goose posh posh alcohol there's a coffee jar that is 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 empty so what does that mean? Does that what does that mean? Uh, maybe it's like when we went to Virgin Mega Stores in the nineteen eighties to buy like the new Rick Astley album, and the records themselves, the vinyl itself, was behind the counter. Maybe, maybe that's it. You take the empty jar. It's like buying records in Woolworths. Snap. Forty years ago, you take the empty sleeve to the counter, and they'll pop a. Re- this is Kenko Instant Coffee. Kenko Instant Coffee says David Brent. They've got shampoo now in the shampoo in the security boxes, and you've got the head of John Lewis. Is he telling the truth here? Have you noticed this? Because I do go shopping. It is in Tesco on the precinct in Salford. I haven't seen anything unusual locked behind boxes. Is it really going on, dear listener? Saying that we need a royal commission to save our high streets, warning that they're becoming a looting ground for criminal gangs. Looting ground for c- criminal gangs. Save our high streets. Stop the shoplifting. And and that's what I mean about boiling a frog. It's it's one of those issues. 35% has gone up in the first six months of this year. That's theft and antisocial behaviour in the first half of this year alone. And that that is a figure that should have everybody sort of... What? Choking on their muesli this morning. Muesli. Because that, that means that there is a very real sense that some shops now are, well, no-go zones. And that's a phrase that the co-op has even come close to using. Come close to using. How do you come close to using a phrase? You either use it or you don't use it. Dear listener, this is the Richie Allen Show. Staying with O'Brien momentarily, just momentarily. Um, he had Martin Kemp's son on the programme. Martin Kemp, Spando Ballet, his son was on. He's an influencer, apparently, and a radio personality. And this kid wants every school in the country to have mental health experts on hand for kids. Think about that. He wants every school in the country to have mental health experts on hand for kids. I wonder why. Let's have a listen. When you look into what help is available for people, it's near on impossible now to, to find any help when it comes to your, your own mental health, especially when it comes to young children. And there was a, a stat that I saw that was just strange. If anything, it's just strange. And it was the government had kind of 
agreed to put mental health support teams. Now, mental health support teams within a school do so much more. They, they can help teachers. They can help uh, parents. They also help the pupils, um, you know, when faced with a mental health crisis. And the government had said, you know what? We're going to put mental health support teams within schools. And our target um, is going to be 36% of schools which i find laughable like I, you know do we know where they got that particular number from i think it was what they what they, it kind of grew because right. it, it grew to 36% but i just find that just so strange because surely anything with a target should be 100% that yes. that should be anything so and the target we've got 36% now our, our work here is done our work here 64% is done. of schools haven't got and, any and what that creates is a lottery it's bizarre but it creates a lottery of yes. kids that are being forgotten about you know what i mean over over half the the kids you know over you know over 60 percent of kids in the uk will find themselves without any support and what i was asking for within this letter isn't even isn't necessarily money isn't necessarily even action right now you know and put these mental health support teams in there right now it's i'm simply asking for that target to change from 20 36 uh, percent to change to 100 percent mm. and i've even said i don't need a date on it i just just need that as a promise. Yeah, Martin Kemp's son wants a promise of 100% provision, every school in the country, uh, to have mental health services on tap if needed. Now, James O'Brien, if he had any balls, which of course he doesn't, could say, you're asking people to provide mental health services to every school, uh, people who go about terrorising children with stories of uh, climate apocalypse. I'm afraid net zero isn't where we should be going. We should be going to real zero. And so we, we've got to take this much more seriously than any any government in the UK is likely to over the next few years. Yeah, Jenny Jones of the Green Party. You want the people who terrorise children with stories about killing granny with their germs. We cannot risk this killing granny and granddad. We cannot risk this killing vulnerable siblings uh, disabled people. You know, we have to get this under control. Yeah, the people who stuff kids full of vaccines they don't need, which might be a contributing factor in the anxiety suffered by so many kids, I don't know. You're asking the folks responsible for harming kids' mental health to supply people to treat them in school? Really? Martin? Let me ask you something. Are you out of your fucking mind? Mad, eh? Yeah, let's wreck children's mental health and then let's provide a provision for for people to go into schools to sit there and listen to children talk about their mental health. It's uh, 14, just gone 14 minutes past the hour. It's Monday's programme, the 11th of September 2023. 22 years on from that fateful Tuesday morning. Do you remember it? I won't be spending any time on it this evening because I don't think there's anything we can add to it as it hasn't already been said a thousand times before. Uh, the, the, the date was marked at One World Trade Centre Plaza, whatever they're calling it these days, by dignitaries and by families or some of the families of those who died. I did see Matthew Letissier, football legend, recently being admonished on social media because he dared, how dare he, to share a link to a clip where somebody was questioning the veracity of the official story pertaining to 9-11. Mad world we live in these days. XL bullies then. Dogs. I don't like them, but it doesn't matter whether I like them or not. I don't like poodles either, or shih tzus. I hate them. Absolutely hate them. And as for... Right, so I, XL bullies, I don't like them. They're very big, very strong, very muscular. 
And one of the reasons I don't like them is because in Salford, they're, they're usually accompanied by a dickhead. And that's pretty much been my experience. Now, you might own an XL bully and you might say, Richie, I'm not a dickhead. And of course you're not. But I haven't met you yet. I generally meet the dickhead with the XL bully. The guy who's Walter Mitty in his mind, who thinks he's some sort of gangster walking around with the dog that's salivating at the mouth. Right. Now, so what? Suella Braverman is the Home Secretary for now. Uh, she's asked for some evidence before a decision is made on whether to ban the breed. What do we know about this? Well, Stan Rowlandson is a dog behavioural expert. He was on every radio and television programme today except this one. And he explains the history of the doggy, the XL bully. It's over to Stan. He was on Times Radio with Stig Abel. They were bred during a hip-hop period in the 1980s. Hip-hop. Blame it on the hip-hop. Yeah. Um, And... Uh, it became very popular. All the, uh, the, the the rap artists and things like that started singing about and rapping about uh, the bully dog. And they become a status symbol for uh, the gangster group and things like this. Uh, and gradually, they started messing about with this dog's DNA. The, the base of this dog is a pit bull. Now, the pit bull is banned in this country anyway, but all bully dogs uh, of that group, the, the small, the medium, the large and the extra large, have, have got pit bull on them. So that's the first base, the DNA base. But then they cross it with a massive, tight, massive dog that's got incredible muscle uh, power and power in there when they attack they kill now these are bred these are bred to fight they're bred to be aggressive they're bred to save the people the gangsters who's got their drug stash and doing things like this these are naturally predatory chase as we saw in that clip. So why would, uh, why, why do you think people have them, Stan? Presumably there's a, there's a bunch of people who are, who are criminals who like them because they're sort of tough, but they're not only owned by, by criminals. You see them out and about, these, these, these dogs, it looks like you do. Why do you think people no. have them? Uh, one, they like the look of it. Two, it's an extension of their ego. And quite not often... Not off- That's the sort of person I've met with the XL bully, the idiot who fancies himself as being a bit, a bit of a gangster. Bit of a status symbol. That's who I've met with them. I've never met a young couple with kids with an XL bully. Always, but a lot of these people, Stig, had this dog as some sort of a power situation. Uh, and it really, really is uh, a very, very, very uh, uh, ultra-aggressive dog. Where the problem is, and uh, uh, is they, they were bred to be that reactive. Now, a lot of people say, oh, well, you can try and get out of them. You can't, it's genetic. This dog wants to fight, wants to kill, wants to, it, it, it'll attack other dogs, it'll attack people, it'll attack children in well, particular. Well, he should have stepped in there, at least be the devil's advocate, you know, but Stig Abel is just another one in a long line of idiot presenters. At least make a game of it, you know. Even if you agree with him, argue with him, why not? Like, um, I don't know how much of that is true. Do you? Do you have an XL bully? But listen, the Richie Allen Show is planning to give away an XL bully before the breed is banned. In the interest of balance, because I've been so negative to the breed, the Richie Allen Show will be giving away an XL bully. We've got a P.O. Box address. Get a postcard. It's a very simple question. In the popular children's song, 
How much exactly was that doggy in the window? That's all I want to know. I know the exact price. If you get it right, XL Bully winging its way to your address. I'll hand deliver it to you. So I will. I'll train you how to use it. So I will as well. I'll give up two weeks of my time. Listen, enough of that bollocks. Um, slavery reparations are all the rage now. You know, the idea that um, Caribbean nations or nations in the West Indies should be given reparations, money, from empires like the British Empire. And this is for, you know, to say sorry and to accept that slavery was terrible and all of that. Now, I don't agree with any of this. And uh, because it never ends. It's all very silly. Uh, The people who live and breathe and work and toil, toil and strive to survive in the United Kingdom today, they've got no connection whatsoever to slavery. They just don't. It's nonsense. It would be the same as the Irish government petitioning the Crown in the UK or the British government for reparations because of the famine. Just absolute nonsense. I don't agree with it. But Julia Hartley Brewer got into it with Charlie Falconer. Falconer, Falconer. Charlie Falconer, a Labour peer, former Justice Secretary, got into the rights and wrongs of this with Julia Hartley Brewer on Talk Radio. And it was kind of amusing. Um, do you think the royal family should pay reparations to Caribbean nations? Well, I don't know what, uh, what, what, is, what is envisaged in relation. I think it is significant. I think it's important that they recognise what the Caribbean nations uh, feel. You were sneering at it quite loudly before. Mm. Uh, and I'm not sure you're right to sneer at it. I think, it's first of all, it's not a grift. It is a grift. We'd like some free money, please. No, it's not a grift. It is uh, a whole. I mean, and, and when you speak to people who have a concern about slavery, for a, for to be able to say we all have a concern, concern about slavery. Time. No one's saying slavery was okay. But we don't want to properly mark how horrific it is. That's what you're saying. You've described no, it as so a fraud people, people a, generations on paying millions a, now that somehow marks how significant it was. You describe it as a grift, and I think you mean by that that it's some sort of con, yes. and I strongly agree with you. Yeah, but, but I you, think it's genuinely so, so, so you think the royal family should pay reparations to Caribbean nations for, for benefiting I, from slavery? I, I don't know what the best way to deal with the problem is, but I strongly disagree with your tone and your language. Oh, I'm so upset. Well, should, well. we, should we be asking for reparations from the Italian government for what the Romans did to us and the Danish government for the Vikings? I think that the what the the, the Roman government did to us and the Vikings is too people long were, ago. No, no, I don't, no. I don't, people, I don't, British people were enslaved. Yeah, it was a long, long time ago. Oh, it was a long time ago. What is the cut-off point for a long, long time ago and reparations then? Whatever the cut-off point is, the Romans are way beyond it. Now, the Romans are way beyond it. 250 years should be the cut-off point. All right. By the way, I'm Richie Allen. This is Monday's Richie Allen Show, broadcasting live on richieallen.co.uk and multiple platforms around the world. Lovely to be with you. Stuart Waiton joins me shortly. Don't miss him. You turned me on. Yeah, Simple Minds alive and kicking 26 minutes past the hour of 5 o'clock. Monday's programme... Listen, this is very important. The Scottish Union for Education believes that anti-racism is being embedded through the school and university sector and that it isn't a good thing and that the movement uses often uses statistics to demonstrate the problem of racism in Scotland and in schools, but... 
But it is selective in the statistics that it chooses to use. The Scottish Union for Education saying that if we take a close look at employment figures, the employment rate for white people and ethnic minorities, we find that uh, no uh, that non-white men, non-white men are doing better than white men. And uh, the uh, Scottish Union for Education says, and I mentioned this earlier on, that while it looks like a progressive and tolerant approach to education, it, it ends up being a kind of a caring type of authoritarianism where only one view, that is that uh, white children and white parents are inherently racist, is taught as fact. Yes, now the chair of the Scottish Union for Education is an academic, an author, a journalist, PhD, Aberdeen University. Let's welcome back to the programme uh, Dr Stuart Waiton. Stuart, welcome back. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Nice to have you on. I uh, hope you had a good summer. Why Why do you think, I, I mean, you can find out pretty quickly that statistics show in, in this instance that the non-white man is doing better. Why are these statistics, and I'm asking you now, of course, to be, um, you, you, you know, I'm asking you to, to give me a guess or to give me an opinion rather than a fact. Why are those statistics ignored? Um, well, one dimension of institutions today is that you have to be anti-racist and it's i mean it's hard to pinpoint exactly when it kind of became what it is but one of the one of the ways that you prove that you're anti-racist today is to say that your institution is racist right and that your society is racist because it's become part of the anti-racist kind of, or the modern weird anti-racist rhetoric is that if you deny, it's like this another denial thing, if you deny racism as a problem, then you're seen as being part of the problem, right? So, I mean, it's very recently this happened. I mean, it's happened in a few places. Dund- Dundee University was a hilarious one of a couple of years back, but just recently in Scotland, the head of uh, Police Scotland resigned, just retired, uh, and he came out and he said, oh, I just want to say Police Scotland is institutionally racist and misogynistic. And you're thinking, isn't this the institution you've just been in charge of for the last however many years? Yeah. Um, but, you know, that doesn't matter. That's he. He is now... You know, that's he's on the side of the angels because he's come out and recognized it's almost it's almost like, you know, it's it's an we, we, we don't believe it can go away. We just think it's somehow it's in the water, it's in our bloods ingrained, in our history, all these things that we can't change. So what racism is and what anti-racism is has become a very peculiar type of thing, more to do with guilt, shame, awareness not really about actually looking at what problems really exist for real people. It's become this kind of moral code. Um, and so you end up with statistics like this, you know, where, where you know, as you say, I was fascinated by this. So you've got this article by this uh, race youth worker, whatever that is, who throws these statistics at you. Um, 12% it, greater unemployment for... Uh, black and ethnic minorities in Scotland. Of course, I just go to the, type it into Google, 
the Scottish government webpage pops up, which explains that in fact it's this it's it's entirely made up of women, right? So twenty three percent black and Asian women are underemployed, unemployed. Whereas actually, when you look at men, black and ethnic minority men in Scotland have a better employment rate. So my presumption with this is that this is probably to do with Asian Muslim families to a certain extent have got a more traditional way of life. Women are less likely to be employed. Um, and so you get an unemployment rate. So it's got absolutely nothing to do with racism at all. It's just to do with cultural differences. And what should be celebrated is the fact that actually uh, there's more black and Asian employment compared with white Scottish people. What so that do should we... be a... Sorry, celebration. sorry, Stuart, what do we know about the quality of those jobs, though? Because there will be some listening, no doubt. There might be people listening who um, are people of colour and they might say, yeah, um, but um, you, you'll find that a lot of these jobs are not great jobs or jobs, and not to be snobby, I'm not snobby, but that they're not great quality jobs. You know, um, low income jobs, maybe um, zero hours contracts jobs. What do we know about that? Yeah, I, I, to be honest with you, I, that's a fair. That, oh, that would be a fair argument. I mean, and, and you know, I haven't got those statistics to hand, but you know, if someone made that argument, I would then go and look at those statistics and see what the myth and reality is. I mean, it's certainly the case that what seems to happen is um, first-generation immigrants start lower down on the on the economic scale in terms of employability and skills and so on and so forth. Um, and then further generations, that kind of improves to a certain extent. Although you do have a particular issue, and this is both in America and Britain, where actually the reverse is becoming true. So in America, in particular, you get a situation where a lot of uh, black Africans who are relatively recent to America are doing extremely well. And it's actually the more ghettoized black communities who have been in America for a long time, who are doing particularly badly. So, but even there, that raises questions because people say, well, America's a racist country. And you say, well, actually, you look at all the different um, ethnic backgrounds and loads of ethnic backgrounds are doing extremely well. It's just one particular section that's doing badly. And if America was a racist society, how on earth could you have all these different groups being so successful? And I think this, the statistics are similar in Britain in terms of... Um, who's actually doing well and who's failing. So, you know, the, the, the question isn't that, uh, or, the, or the, the issue isn't that there might not be some racists in society. But I think it's just, you know, from my experience, certainly in education, in the state sector and so on, and this, this article that this guy was writing was talking about racism in education, as if the education sector, school sector, university sector is riddled with racism. And it's just the opposite's true. You know, the opposite's true. It's riddled with anti-racism. <laughs> I um, he, he, here's the thing, right? I uh, I don't believe that the UK and Ireland is a fundamentally, or, or th- that they are fundamentally racist places, or that there is an underbelly of racism. I don't believe this. That's not to say that I don't believe that there are some racists. Here's the problem I have. I this is how I see it, and you're going to totally disagree, and that's fair enough. I can totally understand why you, um, as a, an educated, loquacious academic um, who isn't racist, why you're horrified 
that um, why horrified at the idea that educators are introducing an idea to children that you are racist. You are you've got racism in you. You know, almost like original <laughs> sin. Whether you believe, I totally get that, and I totally understand the immediate response to that, which is, "Hang on, this is absolutely outrageous." But what can get missed in that, and I'm, I'm not accusing the Scottish Union of Education of missing this, but when things become polarised, we kind of miss things like, look at what's going on in London, and I know it's not Scotland, it's London. There have been too many incidences of WhatsApp messages and text messages coming out where fairly disgusting conversations are being had by either serving or former police officers. And that's a significant thing. And if you're a minority person or a person of colour, Try and tell that person, Stuart, and I'm not, again, I'm not saying that's your, you know, th- that this is your argument, it isn't. But try and tell that person that racism isn't systemic in, in the nation. What would you say to that? Um, well, if the first thing I'd say is that what's interesting about the discussion about racism compared with you know, when I was younger was that the way you thought about racism was really to do with the elites and the powerful and employers and so the problem of racism was that black people, certainly in the 60s, the 70s, to a degree in the 80s, it's, I think it started to die out. But certainly in those periods, black people were treated to a certain extent, not all, but to a certain extent, as second class citizens. Um, you know, the sort of level of violence and contempt for uh, Asian people, Pakistanis in particular, Black people, the way they were policed en masse, systematically, um, you know, I think that was a, a definite thing, and it was a political thing. And black people, they, they, would, they wouldn't, they wouldn't be overt about it, but they would talk about inner city, inner city, which really meant black, and it was politicized. So these people are a problem; they're alien to our country. That was the racism of then. What we now have is racism becomes about how people talk right, and the language they use and the jokes they crack and how crude and obscene they are about certain things. Now, you know, I would be interested to get those individual police officers and have a chat with them and say, you know, do you think black people are inferior? Do you think they should be thrown out of this country? Do you think they shouldn't be allowed to have the same jobs as other people? Do you think they shouldn't marry white people and so on? And I suspect the vast majority of them would answer no to all of those questions. So what are we looking at? If that's true, we're looking at individuals, perhaps individuals who work with the toughest, roughest sections of black gangs and black communities and so on. And so they talk crap. They have crap talk and they use racist terms and they know they're not supposed to, which is another dimension of it because this is something which makes it funny, because you're not supposed to. That's what half of comedy is, is stepping over the line. So possibly, right? They might be hardened racists, right? That might be true. It's also (laughs) to throw in, which again, this is, I don't even know if you're allowed to say this now, but someone's private WhatsApp conversation should not be public property, as far as I'm concerned. It should be nowhere near the court's And there is no way on the planet do I think that you having a private conversation with your mates, whatever you say, should lead to you being 
put in prison, yeah, which is what happened to these cops. Yeah, it's obviously um, one of the cops who was involved has dropped his mates in it. But I disagree mm. with you there, Stuart, respectfully. I, I want to know what the, you know, listen, I don't believe I have any right to, un- to, to listen to or to read the private conversations of people I do not. But if a guy comes out from a group, I see him as kind of a whistleblower, really. And if I'm a black um, individual, I really want to know that, that this is going on. You know, because these guys are going out on duty and they're coming up against black men and women. They're meeting with them and interacting with them. And if they're making pretty crude gags about them, I'd kind of like to know that, personally. Well, it depends. Well, I would like to know if they're genuine, if they're racist in terms of if they think black people are inferior, and they would they would then police them differently. I, I, I think that's fair, a fair cop, and if they are, they should be sacked. If what they're doing is slagging people off, I mean, if you if you came into, um, you know, it's called canteen culture, right? So they make this big yeah. deal about canteen culture. You know, it's the hidden racism and and so on. But canteen culture is where you let off steam, right? It's where you SHIT post, if you like, in your whatever forum that you're doing that. So if you came to my office, for example, it's quite possible at a time someone would come in and we'd start talking about students, right? And, we'd, and, and, and you'd, you probably wouldn't talk about the good students. You'd probably talk <laughs> about some of the worst students. And some yeah. of the things you'd say, you'd say things that you wouldn't want anyone else to hear. You'd use terms that you wouldn't want anyone else to hear. And you don't really mean them because you're, and it, that is possibly, might not be, but that is entirely possibly what we are witnessing in this situation. That's a very good analogy um, you just drew there with your big academic brain on you. But I'm, I'm going to say it's not unfair. It's not an unfair inference. If I'm a person of colour and I see those gags which are often you know, making stereotypical comments about black people. It's not an unfair inference, um, you know, that they might police me differently. I mean, I've got, I, I've, I've got to wonder, right? You, you well, give you me can, that. I mean, you know, there's, 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 there's tens of thousands of police in, um, in London. They follow very strict guidelines in terms of what they can and can't do. They're educated around diversity to a almost, I would say, obsessive degree. So that actually, when you look at what the police are arresting people for, you know, we've had this recently where people, I mean, in Scotland, the police have come out and said, we don't actually deal with a lot of crimes in reality. But it's not the hate crime Facebook posts they're not dealing with. It's, you know, the odd robbery, the odd burglary, the odd, you know, those sort of crimes. And we just don't have time to deal with that. So it seems to be a a kind of a curious world where we imagine that, you know, it's full of racist cops when actually you look at the police and they're at least at an institutional level, possibly the most anti-racist and obsessive anti-racist institution in Britain. So, you know, if I was a black person and I was reading that and I had a sense of the police in general and how you know racism and all the rest of it is perceived i would think it's a, it's a few knobs mouthing off probably but i'd have to look at the posts and i'd have to interview the individuals and i'd have to, i'd have to see what their record is fair enough um i mean see i mean part part of this question is for example right and this is i know again this is sort of like pushing it out there but so for example should 
a Brit, a member of the British National Party, fascist organization, be able to be a police officer or a teacher, right? Uh, I would say yes, right? I would say you can have any political allegiance you like, that is your right, as long as it has no impact on how you do your job, right? Now, that but I how could you is determine that case now. Right? How, could, how could you determine that, Stuart? And again, listen, I've interviewed... Well, you'd, you'd, ha you'd have to have... Your boss would have to determine... I mean, the thing is, you see, the reason that I say this is that otherwise we're saying if you've got the wrong politics, you can't work. No, I understand that. You might as well, you might, you yeah. might as well be killed, right? Now, that's not a free society. And you, in a free society, you should be able to have ideas and allegiances that are... Questionable. Grotesque. I mean, I'm not 100% yeah. about this because I appreciate what you're saying. How can you tell? Would you would you want to send this police officer out into a black area, et cetera, et cetera? It seems impossible, right? But it's le it leaves you with a quandary of, well, so what does that mean then? Do we just cancel? And, and then where does that lead? Because, you know, people might call you far right, right? In fact, they do. On, on my Wikipedia page, they'll often say, which I kind of then try and correct, the far right Richie Allen or alt, whatever yeah, it is, right? Yeah, yeah. So does that mean you shouldn't get employed because you're, you know, where where does that end? So that's no, the right. problem I have with this approach. You know, you're absolutely bang on. And for me, it 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 ended my commercial radio career. Um, until right. that time, offers would have been pretty regular for me to work in uh, commercial radio here and in Ireland. Um, I, I've learned to live with it. I mean, for, for me to be, I mean, it's preposterous. In fact, a very interesting group, um, Jewish lawyers. Um, against the weaponization of anti-Semitism, have have asked to come on this program and others, um, Jewish gentlemen and 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 ladies who are pissed off of people being accused of anti-Semitic because they've spoken to somebody who may or may not be anti-Semitic. I agree with you. It's it's terrible. I've interviewed BNP people on the program before. I've interviewed neo-Nazis on the program before because I'm genuinely interested. You see, Stuart, I used to tell this story. I won't bore you with the story. Um, the most important male figure in my life was an Italian gentleman who was, um, he, he was an OAP. I got to know him in my teens and I loved him. Um, spent most days with him walking to the local cemetery and talking to him. He was fantastic. He was a great family man. He was uh, much loved in the community. But he was pretty much died in the wool racist, very much anti-black racist. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah. I, t I tell this story because... His racism was one facet of who he was. There are many other aspects to the gentleman. And you made the point a moment ago, what do we do? Should they die? Should they just not be allowed to work, to live because of their views? And I asked this question all the time on this programme. I loved my friend, Egidio uh, Gianni. I loved him. absolutely, And I still love him to this day. What are we supposed to do with people? Just say, oh, they're racist, therefore they can't participate in society? It's farcical. It was one part yeah. of who he was. He didn't work with black people. He was never going to interact with black people. And he was also a polite old gentleman. There wasn't a cat's chance in hell that he ever did meet a black person that he would insult them or in some way try to embarrass them. So I hear this. But we can't have this bloody conversation anywhere. This nuanced conversation where we flesh all of this out. You can't do it. Because, because no. Talk TV, uh, GB News, I know you've spoken to these people and some of them are okay. It's a grift with them. It suits them mm. commercially to store this stuff up and frame everything in simple absolutes, doesn't it? Where we can spend a half an hour on it or an hour on it and we might get somewhere. Um, but, but I see a lot of grifting in the media on this issue. I don't know what you think. Yeah, there is to a certain extent. I, I just think it's we're in a... 
we're in a very peculiar and interesting kind of historical period where, you know, when I was a kid and a young adult into my thirties, racism was a kind of an issue for me that I thought felt very strongly about and thought was very important to discuss. Today, I almost feel like it's it's almost the opposite, that what I think we need to discuss is anti-racism. You know, that's what we really need to discuss because the people who run society are obsessively anti-racist. Now, I put anti-racist in speech marks because I think their anti-racism is racist. Yeah, they now talk about whiteness, white privilege. They label all black, all black people as they in law have a protected characteristic as a victim group and so on. So it's almost like new race, racial stereotypes are being created by anti-racists. And that's really what society should be discussing. But because they run all the institutions and you know, most of, most of the media uh, just follow along behind this, um, then the picture you get is the opposite, right? The opposite. Everything is institutionally racist. The police are institutionally racist. Education is institutionally racist. Dundee University supposedly is institutionally racist, even though their own research proves otherwise. And so on it goes and on it goes. And that's now in, being incorporated into schools. So school children in Scotland and in England, in Scotland in particular, now have a curriculum where things like history will be increasingly focused on something to do with slavery or with civil rights or something where it's in a fairly one-dimensional way understood that the past is uh, just a legacy of sin and shame you know there's nothing good comes from the past everything is bad it's only now and so what's really horrible about this at a sort of personal level at a generational level is that kids are essentially being taught that their parents and their grandparents come from a scum generation yeah you know that's that's what that's that's what's really horrible and insidious about it you should really only listen to the experts only listen to the modern elites the professionals uh, the people at university and your teachers, because your parents, your grandparents, you know, there's something fundamentally wrong with these people. And that is such a disgraceful depiction. As you say, attitudes have changed and attitudes are better now in terms of race. And you would have, and I would have been able to find someone, people like you were talking about your Italian, uh, the old, old guy. But, you know, he might have had some really problematic ideas, but he might have also been a really decent human being in lots of different levels. And you cannot attempt to teach history and teach children about the past in such a way that is corrosive and uh, degrading to the whole of the whole of human history virtually. Yeah, that's right. And and while my old friend would have had ideas that we would have disagreed with. And by the way, when he brought these things up, we used to laugh the kids, we used to laugh at him, you know, and take the mickey out of him. But but generations of people in the 60s and 70s, not just in the States, marched against fascism, marched against racism and really stood up against it. And in the late 70s and early 80s, plenty of straight men and women, you know, stood up and when, when it was pretty perilous to be openly gay and stood out against them. So you're right, they, they, they put a message out that the older generation was a dirty one. But in fact, if you really look at it, that's not the case. Stuart Waiting is our guest. It's 10 minutes to the top of the hour. He's a criminologist, sociologist, PhD. He's the chair of the Scottish Union for Education. Go to scottishunionforeducation.substack.com. There's some brilliant uh, research materials on there and articles about all of this. And 
I suppose the, the, the thing to ask you, and this is where we, we're in the realms of speculation again, if it persists, then this, this idea, the eight, nine, ten-year-olds today, what will they be like in their early 20s when they're working in companies or running their own companies and I suppose they're the next generation that will inherit the world, I suppose. That sounds a bit grandiose, but they'll be the next decision makers. I'm kind of picturing Stepford children some sort of Stepford. <laughs> what will they be like, Stuart? Um, uh, good question. I, th- I think there'll probably remain a divide that uh, if you come from a relatively ordinary background, you'll be f- you'll probably be okay. Um, but if you are, come from a better off background, you become one of the elites. You'll be well. You'll be like what we're seeing today. Um, a kind of disconnected, aloof, narcissistic, um, hate-filled individual. And I I think that's what we have already. I I think it's becoming clearer and clearer each year. I mean, the the transformation in, you know, the sort of what in just 10 years, you know, whether it's the trans question or this new critical race theory and so on, how it's just kind of like taken over. Um, I think we're just going to have more, more of that. I, I, but I, I don't know. It's interesting because obviously there are people rebelling about this. I mean, we're, we've set up to s- try and stop indoctrination in schools and, you know, it's setting up as a union also as a kind of intellectual think tank. Um, you know, there's making all sorts of connections with parents and teachers and all sorts of people um, around all of these different issues. So, yeah, things aren't static. I mean, the thing is, you know, and, and people like you exist, you know, GB News, I think there's, there's a, as you say, there are strengths and weaknesses to these um, groups and organisations, but there are some people at least who are prepared to question this. Um, and that, I think that's what's going to be the sort of political battleground for the next 20 years is around these, these around cultural these issues. issues. And by the way, I should qualify what I said about Talk TV and GB News because I do use material from from those organizations i'm i'm being a bit unfair on them the thing that annoys me more than anything and i've been producing radio since the late 1990s for wlrfm in ireland successful stations i ran one of the biggest uh, this is not me bragging about me now but i looked after one of the most uh, listened to uh, mid-morning talk shows on irish radio for years and you know why it was popular Stuart? because we did long-form debates and my criticism for talk TV and GB News is is that they don't bring on intellectual people on both sides of this argument and keep them on for long form. Mm-hmm. You know, non-hostile, non-confrontational. The way your man did it years ago with um, with Enoch Powell, it was brilliant. The American guy whose name always escapes me. Wonderful stuff, like where you've got time to explore an idea. And that's my only criticism on this particular issue. It's all sound bites and accusations, mm-hmm. and, and that winds me up. Can I ask you a couple of questions about a couple of news stories? You can tell me to fake off if you want, but uh, th- these, <laughs> these are right up your street. Um, I, and I'm about, before any, some of Stuart's, um, no doubt, students and friends will be listening to this. If I was anything, I was a Bolivarian socialist. Um, never a conservative in a million years, God no. Um, uh, listen, Luis Rubiales, the Spanish Football Federation president, is being investigated 
a criminal investigation. Um, he's resigned, he announced, uh, funnily enough, on Piers Morgan's well, talk TV show yeah. last night. When the captain came up to get the World Cup, um, he grabbed, I don't know who grabbed who, but he gave her a big kiss. By the way, I've skin in the game here. I lived in Spain for a long time. And I know a lot about Spanish people and how they behave. Well, well I know a little bit. And... Um, so he did this, and um, I'm not saying, you know, you should be kissing somebody on the lips. I'm not saying that at all. But this is about the most bizarre story that I've been kind of watching develop uh, since the turn of the year. What are your thoughts on it as a football fan? Well, actually, it's funny. It's it's probably, uh, although the trans issue is starting to take over my head, but it's probably the issue that concerns me more than anything is the way... We're now creating an entirely new framework for policing intimate relationships. Now, this wasn't an intimate relationship, but interactions. Right. So I think you now have these posters on was it I think this might have been in Scotland actually. Someone sent me this poster about staring at someone on the train, so which is a it's now an offense and you could get arrested for this and so on. I think what's happening is the criminal justice system which it says it itself is essentially, uh, it's not just the criminal justice system, it's culture more generally as this demonstrates, but the criminal justice system and institutions are becoming uh, victim oriented. So what that means is they, the way they think about what a person is, is that they're vulnerable, profoundly vulnerable um, and a potential victim. And young people, particularly young women, are being educated that that is what you are to your to your essence you are vulnerable and therefore once that starts to become the cultural norm or the expected norm almost any interaction can be understood to be damaging right and so you get a situation like this where you know i think that guy was being a bit of a knob i suspect he's a bit overexcited he's a bit of a big man possibly um and he's just getting you know he's excited right and then he kisses this woman right which i think's a bit weird personally but you know i'm not you know as you say spain might be slightly different in terms of whatever right but whatever you think about that from, from our age group if you like the reaction to it is hugely disproportionate so, I mean, someone said to me the other day in the pub, do we even remember the World Cup? Right? Because no one, no one cares about the World Cup anymore, the Women's yeah. World Cup. They only yeah. care about this story, which actually tells us something about that World Cup, possibly in terms of, you know, we're, we're supposed to be all into women's football, even if we're not really. Um, but yeah, it's just, it, that's disappeared. And all we have is this incident and that's, you know, it's like, how can somebody, because I think the woman's trying to take him to court, how can somebody be saying this is a criminal offence if he's doing it in front of the world? I mean, it's the strangest criminal act if you do it in front of cameras and 50,000 fans or whatever there was there. I mean, it's very, very peculiar, right? But it doesn't matter because it's the news correct sensibility, which is based around victimhood. And if she says she's been you know, abused or offended or whatever it is, she has been, that's her word, that's how she feels. Um, and any kind of objective assessment, any sense that you could should you can maybe deal with people, deal with difficulties, deal, deal with if if they are being a bit stupid and pathetic, all that goes out the window. 
and you get this new borderline hysterical framing of how relationships should be. And it really, really worries me about how young boys uh, are growing up today um, and how they're going to, what's going to happen to them in terms of the criminal justice system and the sort of punishments that are going to potentially develop around things like this. I always went to school with girls um, just before we wrapped this up in primary school and secondary school and we would play um, games like Kiss Chase and sometimes a young boy might do something silly and might lift the skirt of a girl, not necessarily to have a look but just to give her a fright and then run away to get a chase. All of this stuff went on. Nobody I went to school with ended up in prison for, you know, for rape or, or, or for battery. I worry about it too. I think you hit the nail on the head, by the way, when you described what Rubiales did. I think he fancies himself and he knows that the cameras are on him when the skipper comes. Uh, Hermosa, we must give her, her, her due by, giving, by calling her by her name. He knows that. He knows it's a photograph that's going to go around the world. It's, it's kind, of, kind of perversely maybe virtue signalling what he's doing. But um, yeah, the reaction is is uh, is absolutely crazy. Really appreciate you um, coming on the show. You're back in action, presumably, at um, Abertay University. You're quite busy, I would imagine, these days. Yeah, yeah, it's all kicking off this week. Brilliant, fantastic. You wouldn't be a cricket fan, would you, like me? Uh, I would. Strangely, that was my sport when I was a kid. I played for my county when I was a when I was a boy. Well, well, then you're a happy man today. Durham have been promoted to Division One. You probably know this anyway, which is fantastic. Um, Durham, yeah. Durham, back in in the top flight. Stuart, um, thanks for coming on. Love talking about these issues. Please, God, I don't know if God exists, but um, we might get to a stage in the very near future where people who hold uh, views that are different to you but are smart and bright and open-minded. Maybe we'll get, you know, a couple of debates going on here where I'm not pressing you, where we can have, you know, kind of like we used to. I pine for those days, Stuart. Final word to you, and thanks for coming on again. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I totally agree. I think exactly what you said, um, that sort of long-based uh, discussion where you can actually draw things out and allow people to explain and express themselves without being terrified of ideas that you disagree with. I think it's, uh, I think it's incredibly important for, for democracy actually to have something like that. Stuart, thanks again. Look after yourself. Have a good autumn. We'll speak soon, no doubt. Bye for now. Stuart Wayton, PhD, criminologist, sociologist and the chair of the Scottish Union for Education. Check that website out, scottishunionforeducation.substack.com to read those articles. Good to have Stuart back on the programme today. Huge amount of comments came in during that. I'll read them uh, now, or as many of them as I possibly can. Hi to Bobsky, who says you can tell the level of justice in a land by how easy the laws are to understand. Christopher says, the thing happening in Spain, the kiss, the grabbing, the crotch looks so staged, followed by highlighting, blaming the victim, all staged. His mother went on hunger strike, all staged, says Christopher. Maybe. I'm not sure about that, but maybe. What do I know? Nico says, if Rubiales had kissed a player from the male football team on the lips, it would have been considered brave and wonderful. But kissing a woman? God forbid, says Nico. Thank you, Nico. Very good. And says, Stuart is brilliant. Please bring him on again. He will be on again. He's been on before. He'll be on again. And Vivian. I got in touch. Hi, Vivian. Vivian is a black man. Richie, he says, the word is wind, Richie. I have to travel a lot to places in Europe. 
And I do not travel looking for racism. I take people as they come, says Vivian. Thanks, Vivian, for that. Appreciate it. Hi to Linda. Richie, I'm an OAP, she says. They can stick their boosters where the sun doesn't shine. We reluctantly took on a 13-year-old Shih Tzu after my sister-in-law died. The little dog, Ruby, brought such joy to our lives until she passed away, age 16. Uh, great show, says Linda. Thanks, Linda. And when I mentioned Shih Tzu, I was just thinking of the first breed that came into my head. I generally like old dogs. No, no, I've got to be totally honest. I prefer a large breed. I like the big German Shepherds and I like the Golden Retrievers, even though we were sold an absolute dud when we got Leia, our Golden Retriever. A dud. No, she's beautiful, but she's very, very mini. She's very small for the breed. I like them to be nice and big because I'm a big guy myself, you know. Pedro says, Richie, I'm sure they made the storm that flooded the GNR on Sunday. They've been practicing it, he says. I filmed it last week at work. No wind. It's like they turned the rain on and the lightning is really strange. I'm no expert, he says. I just filmed the sky. Thank you, Pedro. Thank you for all your messages this evening. Hi to Nelly. I'm 65, says Nelly. Haven't had a vaccine since school. If I had all the vaccines offered to me since uh, this began in 2020, I would have had four flu jabs and four COVID. That's at least eight. They can feck off, says Nelly. Thank you, Nelly. And Grace Ann says, regarding the bully, you're right, Richie, about the bully dog. The owner seemed to be a certain type of person. That's just my opinion, says Grace Ann. Thank you for it, Grace Ann. Uh, too many messages. Max, no, 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 don't read into that. Keep sending them in, but I can't spend a whole show reading them out. Uh, but thank you for the Max and Brighton. The co-op is now so expensive. A half a litre of oat milk is 150. That's just 500 millilitres. When Taj over the road sells one liter for one seventy nine, much fairer. Well, go to Taj Max. Absolutely, I found that actually. There are two corner stores near where I live, and both of them are run by Asian families, and both of them are lovely people. Uh, they're very welcoming, very helpful, very uh, very good guys. Right now, um, I find or have found recently sometimes that the corner shop item is comparable or even cheaper than the big supermarket. I don't know how that works, but I've seen that too. Drew asks, where did the phrase mental health come from? I never heard it growing up and I'm 57. Thank you, Drew. All right, I've got to uh, take a tune. What a, oh, I've got The Clash. Yes, I've got The Clash lined up for you. The Clash. Now, um, when we come back, we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about a few things. One, there is a class action against Pornhub, the website, which is a pornographic video sharing website, right? It's one of the biggest websites in the world, not the biggest porn websites in the world. It is one of the most clicked upon websites in the world. I'm not perfect, so don't call me a virtue singular. When I say this, I'm just telling the truth. Show me a man who says that he has never watched pornography on the internet and I'll show you a liar. Okay, I have watched pornography on the internet increasingly less and less as time has gone on. And that's the truth. I'm getting old, maybe getting a bit more mature. I don't know. I do not use Pornhub and haven't used it for a long time. But I did not know that thousands of videos on Pornhub feature women appearing in these videos against their will. And in many cases, underage girls. So rape is going on. Or the raping and trafficking of women is happening on Pornhub.com. There is a class action. And um, we'll be talking about this with Layla Mickleway. She founded 
and is the CEO of the Justice Defence Fund and she founded the Global Trafficking Hub Movement. She's been featured by the New York Times, the LA Times, she's been on the news in the US uh, a lot on this particular issue. We're going to talk to her about that in a few minutes' time. I have no doubt that you will have comments for me. Send them through uh, to richieallen.co.uk, comment live, or use the Richie Allen Show app where you can send a message to me directly. It comes through to me instantaneously. Ask not what the BBG can do for you, but what you can do for the BBG. Support the Richie Allen Show now at richieallen.co.uk. Going to play this from my mate in Connemara. This is the Magnificent Seven by The Clash on the Richie Allen Show. Seven minutes past six. This is the Magnificent Seven from The Clash on the Richie Allen Show. Funny enough, listening to that over the weekend. The story of The Clash. There's some great compilations out there. It isn't sexy. It isn't the done thing to to talk up compilations. It's not cool to talk up compilations. You're supposed to talk about albums. In London, Calling is an amazing album. But I love certain compilations. I remember The Edge from U2 was asked on telly years ago, what's your favourite album of all time? And he said, Legend by Bob Marley. He said, I know it's a compilation, but just listen to it. Back to front, it's just magnificent. And when he said that, following day I dug it out and listened to it back to back. Hadn't done for years. And he was right, it's wonderful. Yet it's a compilation. Abba Gold. Tell me that you wouldn't smile dance, sing along if you stuck Alba Gold on, on the stereo. Listen, change of plan this afternoon. Leila uh, Micklewaite has uh, got in touch just very recently to say something has come up and she can't do the live radio show. That's a bit of a shame. A serious issue that I was looking forward to getting into it. She's uh, the founder and CEO of the Justice Defence Fund and, and is raising awareness about the goings-on at Pornhub. Uh, knew this was a live radio show and agreed to do the interview last Friday, so it isn't ideal to be telling a presenter um, close to six o'clock you can't come on. But I suppose shit does happen, and I generally don't tend to get too annoyed when that happens. So she won't be on the programme. It's always telling when they don't ask to reschedule. And I've been in this game for many, many, many years. When they decide not to offer a reschedule, it's often because they've just decided against coming on. Maybe that's the case. As I said, I don't know. I'm going to leave it there. I'm not going to speak of it again. And there's plenty to talk about because you've been hammering me with messages during my conversation with Stuart and I suppose I can read some of those. Now, speaking about dogs, a number of you got in touch with me who know people who do have XL bullies and you've been telling me that it's definitely the owner, not the dog, in the case of the XL bully, the big gargantuan dog. Well, they look so bloody big, don't they? I mean, my female German Shepherd is big, and she's getting bigger. And I, I notice this fairly regularly, how she's broadened out and is big. And we take great care when we're out and about to put her on the lead quickly when we spy smaller dogs approaching us with their owners in the distance. We put Bobby Jean back on the lead because we know that people are a bit nervous and sometimes they panic. And Bobby, being a pup, likes to play with other dogs kind of a thing. But she's still a German Shepherd. These things are big old units, these XL bullies. And uh, like we said earlier on, my encounters with them have been 
when they've been, the dogs themselves have been accompanied by Muppets. Gotcha fairly judgmental, Richie. No, no, no. We know a Muppet when we see one. When you live in a housing estate, and I grew up in a housing estate in Ballybeg in Waterford City, we know a Muppet when we see one. Our Muppet antenna is always, you know, on the alert when you're out and about on the estate. But one or two of you have got in touch with me to say, look, listen, I, I will facilitate. If you own an XL bully and you would like to talk to me about this on air, because, let's be honest about it, it's getting pretty much wall-to-wall coverage on UK media today. The Home Secretary has asked for evidence. She wants to ban the breed, making it illegal. I was reading about this today in Ireland, God's country, back home in Ireland. Um, Owning an XL bully is allowed, but the dog must be muzzled. I'm going to double-check that in a moment. I believe if you own an XL bully in Ireland, it must be muzzled and kept on a particularly short lead, a lead under two metres long. I read this today. So the Irish seem, or the Irish government or the Irish authorities, they seem to think that while owning the XL bully is okay, there may be some problems with the dog, so they've come to a compromise in Ireland. In Turkey, the dog is banned outright. The Turks do not like their XL bullies at all, so the dog is banned. But like I said, if you own one and you feel strongly enough, if you feel strongly enough about this, reach out to me via the app or via the website and I I will endeavour to get you on to discuss this this afternoon, okay? I should give you the number for the app. Oh God, no, the app you download, the Richie Allen Show app you download. Yes, on Google Play or the App Store. Uh, the website, you just type comment, just go into comment and I leave a message. But I am on WhatsApp. And the number for the WhatsApp for the show is 075-659-42270. That's 075-659-42270. And let me reiterate something about the WhatsApp. So there are plenty of ways to contact me when I'm live on air. You can use Comment Live, as I've already said, or you can use the app. When I'm live on air, please do not send me Hello Richie messages through the WhatsApp. I won't read them. The WhatsApp number is there for phone-in shows primarily, not for sending messages to the programme. There are plenty of other ways to use, uh, to send messages to the programme, so please do not send me a message through WhatsApp with a comment during the talk show, because I won't read it. Because there are places already for you to do that, as I've said. But the WhatsApp number, if you have an XL bully and you want to talk to me, uh, 0756594270. Obviously, if you're outside the UK, plus 4465942270. There are those of you who have said previously, this is another engineered, media engineered moral panic. A story to scare people and to distract people while more important things are going unnoticed. You know, like some pushing the climate thing, of course, and all of, all of the draconian things they want to introduce. And of course, the boosters and more COVID variants. You might very well be right. Now, Chris says, Richie, regarding television debates, I don't remember people being vilified as anti-Semitic if they opposed Bernard Levin, who was always on the BBC with David Frost, etc. Thanks for that, Chris. David was on to say, Richie, I used to work in porn. David, send a message to me. 
let's let's have a chat. He says, the amount of legal documents you have to sign before you go on set takes half an hour uh, to sign each page. It's a big stack of documents. There is absolutely nothing you could complain about after because every scene is explained meticulously in the legal documentation. So David says, well, I used to work in porn. You've got to sign lots of documents. It takes about an hour to sign them. So if you do appear in a scene, you've got no complaints. You've signed the waiver. You've given the consent. Also, two forms of proof of age have to be provided um, to show you are 18 years old. No porn producer would dare put a porn film on Pornhub unless these legal documents were signed and dated by the actors. Now, David, that's a very well put together post and a good argument, but I'm going to shoot it right down. Campaigners against trafficking have been able to demonstrate that young women filming themselves in bedrooms or hotel rooms have been able to open an account with Pornhub and begin to, to, um, to stream live or to upload videos of themselves in sexual situations. And these are women who are underage. And that's the point being made by the woman who's not on the programme tonight. We won't mention her again that it is all too easy for people to traffic girls, uh, force them to participate in filming, because Pornhub is not doing enough to make sure this doesn't happen. And I think in one of the articles I read about in my exhaustive research today, uh, ahead of this interview, that that hasn't happened, he says for the final time, um, that um, at one time, Pornhub had one person, one person, working on their own, working to determine whether or not the actors and actresses of flagged videos, right, so when videos were being flagged to Pornhub, so Pornhub gets an alert, and they're told, right, we think there's an underage person in this video, right, okay? Pornhub had one person working to determine that, at one time. So while David's, the, the former porn actor, what, what he's, it's an excellent message, and I'm sure in a live filming situation, back in the days of Blu-ray and DVD, I'm sure due diligence was followed to the letter. But these days, and only fans have had this problem too. Only fans. Now, you know my great friend Hayden Hewitt is a, a real activist when it comes to the protection of young women. And Hayden told me at one time, he says, Richie, it's, as, it's a piece of piss. There's a colloquialism for you there now. It is a cinch for people to coerce youngsters to make sexual videos and put them on things like OnlyFans and Pornhub and other places. And that's why there's a class action in California. And activists reckon there are tens of thousands. So you're watching a video on Pornhub, right? Whatever it is you're into. I'm not going to get into it. It's too early in the day. Whatever your particular compunction might be, there's a good chance that one of the people in the video is not there of their own volition and is underage. And that's, that's beyond a scandal, you know. Um, as I said, Pornhub, at one time, the fifth most, uh, the, the fifth biggest website on planet Earth in terms of the traffic, no pun intended, going through it. Uh, Clifton in Waterford. Hi, Clifton. He says, Is it, it isn't true about the, the bully needing to be muzzled or kept on a short lead in Ireland. Clifton, I, I'm going to, I'm going to call, I'm going to read your message and then I'm going to double check. Um, there is no requirement, he says, in Irish law for this, for the muzzle or the short lead. My neighbour has two and there are a few around the estate in Ballybeg 
They're horrible yokes, he said. They should be drowned at birth or else banned too dangerous. Well, my research today, and I have to say I used the BBC, fair enough. Maybe I'm an idiot. I also used Wikipedia. But I'm going to do the Excel bully on Wikipedia now as I speak with you because I'm sure the claim was made that in Ireland the dog isn't banned but you must have it on a shortened lee. Let's see. Um, Ireland. In Ireland, the American bully is restricted as a banned dog. It must be muzzled and on a lead no longer than two metres when it's in public amongst other requirements. So where did Wikipedia get that from? It got it from the Irish Independent newspaper um, in December of last year. Independent.ie No dogs are banned in Ireland but 11 are on the restricted list and the Independent goes on to say that the law in Ireland states that the bully must be muzzled and on a lead no longer than two metres. I'm not saying you're wrong, Clifton. It could very well be that the law isn't being enforced. The question begs to be asked. It's one thing to bring a law like that in. It's another thing to police the bloody thing. (laughs) You know? So who's going around policing? That's a good question. And David got back on to me, the porn actor who was a porn actor in the 90s, who says, yes, he agrees, as things have changed. Uh, Thanks, David. Um, Yeah, probably easier back in the day. You know, I'm sure producers of porn, whatever we might think about those who make porn, we might have a moral, we might have a moral position against people like that. But I would be a hypocrite. Because when I was a younger man and the internet came into being, just I was fascinated by the old porn now, so I was, he says. Not trying to be flippant. So, um, yeah. Different landscape now, no doubt about that. Holly says, do you think people are more scared of dogs interacting? Parents have definitely got weirder about their kids interacting. I think you're right. And what happened during the COVID scam, as we well know, a lot of people, again, I have no statistics here, so I'm talking through uh, the top of my head and maybe I'm talking through my backside. I don't have the statistics. But we know when the lockdowns happened that people who didn't ever have dogs in their lives previously began to think about having a dog and did have a dog because they were at home. Now I can speak anecdotally here. We walk around predominantly a park near us but we go elsewhere with the dogs and we met and I have to say quite a lot of people, (coughs) excuse me, we met many people who we asked them about their dog and they said we got the dog in lockdown. Now we would be sitting having a pint in Media City and somebody would come up to us with a dog. we talk about the dog. When did you get the dog? Lockdown. Did you ever have a dog before? Quite often, no. So these are people who never had dogs. And there's an interesting example. When the German Shepherd was very young, um, she would be pawed at and sometimes she would be jumped on by bigger dogs in the park. Because we know dogs, we've always had dogs, that's not a big deal. In fact, it's not a deal at all. The bigger and older dog is uh, smacking around the little dog by way of saying, this is the hierarchy here, I'm the daddy, I'm the leader of the pack, blah, blah, blah. But often the owner of the slightly older dog would panic and drag their dog back and we would tell them, look, stop, will you? Calm down. You're not wor- No, we're not worried. She needs to get a few slaps. She's a domineering German shepherd. She's going to be a big dog one day. She's learning pack manners. 
That's what it's all about. And the point Holly is making, I think, is that because we've got so many first-time dog owners, I hate to say owner, uh, generally the dogs, we used to say cats own us, the dogs tend to dictate where we go, when we go there, what we can do. But so many of them are new, they don't understand any of this. And they do tend to collapse at the sight of a bit of growling or a bit of snarling when there's no need for it. You know, we used to meet a lady called Nicole who had a big, massive German Shepherd. And he used to jump all over our dogs and she'd panic us, stop, leave them alone. They're fine. He's just asserting himself as the dominant one in the neighbourhood. It's no big deal. But anyway, it's 27 minutes past the hour. I certainly wouldn't be a dog behavioural expert or anything like it. But I know enough about dogs having lived with them for uh, off, off and on, it must be said, for for most of uh, of my life. Get in touch with me via the app for the programme. Please download it. Please consider leaving a review for it. Or, uh, if you don't want to do that, um, uh, message me through Comment Live on uh, the website. It's Monday's Richie Allen Show, 27 and a half minutes. It is now past the hour. Okay. More of your comments in a moment. Chris, or even now, Chris says, Richie, I want to share something. I've had my first raspberry from the canes I planted earlier in the year. He says, I thought I'd share that with the world and the Richie Allen Show audience. I'm pretty sure we've saved ourselves 20 quid a week this year growing our own veggies and the taste is much more flavour than if bought in the shop, says Chris. Thank you, Chris. Really appreciate that. Thank you for that update on the raspberry growing. Ian says, I realise this will be an unpopular opinion, but I believe all dogs above a certain weight should be muzzled in public and bullies should be illegal, says Ian. All dogs above a certain weight should be muzzled, he says. I wouldn't imagine you're alone there, Ian. Um, I wouldn't imagine you're alone. I, 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 that's, yeah, I would expect a lot of people who are not interested in dogs. Maybe you are interested, maybe I'm misrepresenting you. But a lot of people who do like their dogs, or maybe a lot of people who don't like their dogs, might think that's a good idea. Uh, Sean asks, do you or your listeners have any thoughts on that amazing lightning storm over Hull on Saturday evening? It was an amazing thing to see, with 500 lightning strikes an hour at its peak. We had a few flashes here in Salford, but uh, nothing too heavy here at all. Okay. Paula says, Richie, the answer to your competition is two and sixpence. It's actually in the last verse. Is it? Is that right? How much is that doggy in the window? Was well, two and sixpence. So Paula says, uh, I can't wait to, to meet you, Richie, and to receive my prize bully. Uh, hold your horses, Paula. I said answers on a postcard. You'll have to wait until we make the draw. Going to take another tune. Uh, when we come back, uh, more talk. You've been bombarding me with September the 11th stuff, but like I said, I don't think there's anything new we can add to the September the 11th story. The anniversary today, 22 years on. I can hardly believe it myself. This day last year, I was in a radio studio where I'd been for over 12 hours. Mad times. Fleetwood Mac, Little Lies on the Richie Allen Show. 22 years ago, September the 11th, 2001. I, I don't know if you can even do it, really. It's been so long now, but um, look look at what's happened since then. Try and put September the 11th and to put it in the context of everything that's come since then, because we often talk about it in terms of where we were. 
on the day and how we felt about it on the day and then we talk about it in terms of what we think might have really happened and what might not have happened but we don't often look at the immediate aftermath of it in terms of from a legislative point of view how things happen afterwards the Patriot Act and stuff like that civil liberties were ripped up and how none of that was ever given back and how that rolled on you know, into, because all of this stuff is interconnected, of course, at least I believe it is, into the 7th of July attacks in London and the response to, to that. So we don't often do that. I don't think I've got the time to do it in 29 minutes. It certainly changed my life, um, you know, in, in terms of we, we had to call it, I hate to say play by play. We came back from lunch when it happened. It happened in the very... Not the early morning, but it happened around just before 9 o'clock in the morning, New York time, uh, just before 2 p.m. That would have been British summertime. Um, It would have been British summertime, yeah. And we had come back from lunch planning to sit down and discuss what we were going to do on Wednesday morning's programme. And we didn't, because when we arrived back at the studio, our news people told us something was going down in New York, it looked like a pilot had lost his or her way, and then we saw the second plane hit live, or that's how it seems in any case. But the thing I we don't mention often enough, and I should mention this more than I do, was the previous day, Monday. You have to remember, because we were journalists, mired in the legacy, whatever you want to call it, mainstream media, we were across geopolitics. And I will never forget... Late Monday evening, I was having a chat with my presenter, who's no longer with us, sadly, a great man. And we were talking about what we were going to do on Tuesday, which was September the 11th. And I, as the producer, made the decisions as to what we were going to talk about and who we spoke to. But he would have had input because he was the senior man, he was the presenter, but he was also a director of the station. We were talking about it. And as we were talking, he said to me, did you see that Donald Rumsfeld press conference? And I said, I did, because I had seen it as it happened. And he said, what do you make of that? And I said, it's very strange. The Secretary of Defence announced on television that he couldn't account for $2.3 trillion. That um, the Pentagon, the budget, $2.3 trillion had gone missing. And the point my learned and experienced colleague was making was no politician of even moderate experience would announce such a catastrophic mistake or revelation on on a Monday because you're giving the hacks in Washington DC and in Los Angeles and everywhere else you're giving them basically the whole week to tear you to shreds nobody would admit on a Monday let alone one of the most senior political positions in the country nobody would say Jesus, we've um, lost $2.3 trillion. Because that, by Tuesday morning, or by Tuesday lunchtime, you're out of a job. The president is saying, uh, Rummy, you're a fucking idiot, and uh, you've got to leave now. I've got to appoint a new defence secretary. But um, later on, we never thought of that on the Tuesday. So on the Tuesday, you're covering... You're covering... What's happened? You're covering the buildings having come down. And of course, we're just going along with the narrative because that's how we've been trained, is to go along with the narrative and not question it. 
the madman in the caves did it. But it doesn't occur to most then, and that's one of my regrets, and I'm sure if if Billy was alive, he might say it was one of his regrets, that we didn't make the connection and say to ourselves, Jesus, Rumsfeld announced that 2.3 trillion, not million now, I mean, million is bad enough, 2.3 trillion, which might be the the... the the GDP of a small country. Right? <laughs> in fact, I don't know what Ireland's GDP is, but it's not 2.3 trillion. At least I don't think it is. Correct me if I'm wrong, right? So uh, maybe not. But yeah, so Rummy says this on the Monday, and we don't make the connection on the Tuesday. And that's to my regret. And I'm not fishing for any compliments at all here now. Yeah, we all grow up, and these days I believe nothing. I trust nothing, and I question everything. But then I was an impressionable young producer. You know, learning as I went on the job. And we should have known better, but we didn't. Strange one, isn't it? And and look, you can look this up if you don't believe me. It is just unthinkable for any Secretary of State to announce a, a major cock-up on a Monday or a Tuesday. They do not. And if you give me time, I will be able, not tonight now, but you'll have to give me 24 hours anyway, I'll be able to bring to this programme examples in the UK, in Ireland and in America when state departments or departments of state have come clean and admitted a cock-up of gargantuan proportions. It happens on a Friday. They hope it gets buried over the weekend. Something else happens. So by announcing it on a Friday, they farted, but a very loud fart. They hope over the weekend there'll be lots of other farts and the media will be, you know, running from pillar to post and, and whatnot. But yeah, Romy. So the question begs to be asked, did Donald Rumsfeld or someone working with him know that his massive announcement, I mean, this would have been one of the biggest political stories of the entire year of 2001. But did someone working with him, or did he know that the story would be buried forevermore by the events of the following date? Maybe. Maybe. These are things that we will never know. And that's the frustrating thing for many people, isn't it? We'll never know, Richie. I know. We'll probably never know. <laughs> but, but what do I suspect? Without any proof whatsoever, I suspect that the answer is pretty straightforward. Yes. Yes, they knew. It was pretty safe on Monday. September 10th, to say, um, Jesus, you know, lads, we lost track of $2.3 trillion. That's corruption on an unimaginable level. Another thing that almost struck me when I had my moment of clarity um, a couple of years later was work. Again, please, I'm, I'm on the hoof here. I'm on, I'm on the run with no notes, so correct me if I'm wrong. But didn't Rolling Stone magazine's Matt Taibbi who you're going to say, oh, he's a shill, Richie. Uh, uh, uh. Listen, you can say what you want. I don't know that to be true. I used to like reading Matt Taibbi. Now, to my knowledge, sometime after September the 11th, Matt Taibbi was able to, using his investigative skills, was able to find out that um, somebody made a lot of money betting on the stocks of both major airlines falling um, in the weeks leading up to... Um, the day itself, September the 11th, 2001. Individuals made fortunes shorting or using put options on the stock of American Airlines, particularly and United Airlines. Now, being the really good journalist as he was, Matt Taibbi, he went, that smells a bit. That isn't coincidental. This is very specific betting. 
going on here. Somebody may very well have known that something terrible was going to happen on September the 11th. So he really got stuck into it. You can read about this on, dare I say it, you can read about it on, even on Wikipedia, I think there's some mention of it. And he went after answers. He went after answers. He questioned everybody, but he was stonewalled everywhere he went. And in the end, somebody in the State Department and somebody in the, somebody representing the National Security Agency said that it was probably Al-Qaeda operatives or somebody connected to Osama bin Laden. This is the truth now. So this guy says somebody got rich off of September the 11th, maybe foreknowledge. And the best, the, the, the agencies, the pillars of the state could do, the FBI, the intelligence agencies, the NSA, the CIA, the best they could do was, well, we've come up dry. It must have been Osama and his many, many, many cousins. Yeah, so the man in the super cave in the Tora Bora Hills in Afghanistan, as well as masterminding the greatest attack um, on American soil ever, using four planes with pilots who couldn't fly a fucking drone, if you gave him a drone and the remote controls to a drone, as well as doing all that, he had the foresight and the cleverness to also bet on it. You know, forget about the fact that by put, by, by put options coming out of the Middle East, bets against the stock of American Airlines and United Airlines, you're supposed to forget about the fact that this would have raised probably a million red flags in any case. This is what happened. So Matt Tybee did that very, very, very good. And then one of the authors, or the chief author, of the 9-11 Commission report, whose name escapes me, he went public after the report was published. Massive book. I read it some, well, many, many years ago. I read as much of it as I could stand. He said afterwards, he admitted that his own, his own report was flawed because he said it was set up to fail. That's a direct quote. It was set up to fail. His name will come to me in a moment. He was a lawyer. In fact, I'm going to Google it while I'm talking to you. He said that he was stonewalled at every possible uh, juncture. Everywhere he went, he was stonewalled. In fact, didn't George Bush and Dick Cheney agreed to be interviewed by the 9-11 Commission report on the condition that they were interviewed at the same time and on the condition that what they told the Commission would not be included in the final draft. Why? Why would you insist on that? All these things we found out many years later. We often get caught up, so we do, in the what happened on the day and whether it was a directed energy weapon and whether there was no planes at all and all of that old bollocks which I never got involved in because I interviewed a couple of guys on the day who saw the planes hit the buildings. Guys that had been dragged into a taxi by Peter Franklin, the Gabby Cabby, an absolute gentleman and a scholar, famous cab driver in New York City who used to appear on this programme years ago. And a lovely fella, still is a lovely fella. And we were on to Peter saying, grab anybody, Peter. And we spoke to people who were standing there looking up as the second plane hit. So I don't know. But we got caught up in all of that shit. And we lost sight of the obvious stuff. And I think a lot of time has been spent over the years trying to convince family members, no planes, directed energy weapons and all this shite, when the evidence is pretty simple. And I'm 
scrambling for the name Thomas Keane. Thomas Keane chaired the 9-11 Commission report and he said it was set up to fail and that he was stonewalled at every turn. Yeah, and he gave interviews where he said as much to CNN and NBC and C-SPAN. All these things. And you wonder, 22 years later, how relevant is it now? I noted today that one of the one of the Secret Service agents on the JFK detail has now emerged. I read the Telegraph as I read all the newspapers uh, for this programme. Guys come out now and said that the magic bullet theory is bollocks. Well, well, duh. If I put that into a search engine, let me let me just have a look. Magic bullet theory. Because I read this today in the Telegraph and in the Times, it must be said, but the Telegraph had it first. Paul Landis breaks his silence after six decades and says he heard two extra shots during the 1963 attack in Dallas. But I saw a wonderful documentary on the National Geographic Channel many years ago, and I think it's disappeared, completely disappeared. It hasn't been shown again. Where they got the most up-to-date forensic techniques and they applied them to the video using computers applied them to the, to the the Pruder film and some other film and they came to the conclusion didn't they dear listener that the fatal shot was fired from street level that a guy had been hiding under a manhole on the street in Dealey Plaza and he popped his head up as the motorcade was approaching and had a simple shot at JFK, blew the head off him from the front, dropped down, pulled the man cover hole back on top of him and then escaped out the storm drain. But that's never been shown again or I've never been able to find that documentary. So the Telegraph running today with Paul Landis, a Secret Service agent who was just feet away from JFK when he was assassinated, claims he found the magic bullet but it got misplaced in a curious intervention as it raises questions about a second shooter. Paul Landis, who was standing on the running board of the car behind the president, so not on the president's car, also said he heard two extra shots during the attack. Mr Landis, who never testified to the commission into the assassination, said he picked up the bullet from the back seat of the car where JFK had been sitting and placed it on the president's stretcher for investigators to examine. But somehow the bullet ended up on Texas Governor John Connolly's stretcher, fueling the magic bullet theory is that it passed through Mr. Kennedy and it hit Mr. Connolly. And that scene in Oliver, Co- Oliver Stone's JFK, where, where Jim Garrison played by, by Kevin Costner, it's an amazingly powerful scene when Jim Garrison completely destroys the ludicrous magic bullet theory there's a bullet that kept passing in and out of bodies and turning around and, and dipping down and then coming back up. It's brilliant. It's not the greatest film ever made, uh, JFK, but that's a wonderful scene in it. So this guy, who's in his 80s now, 83, says he heard extra shots and he placed a bullet from the back seat of JFK's car on the gurney or the stretcher, but then it ended up on the stretcher of John Connolly. And this is the point I'm making with respect to September the 11th. We've known since forever that John F. Kennedy Jr. was murdered by a conspiracy. We, we've argued over and over about who, who was involved in it. Was it the mob? 
who had, you know, serious grievance with Bobby Kennedy. Look up Joe Kennedy and, and, and who he was, right? Was it the FBI? They hated him. Was it Cuban dissidents? Was it, uh, or was, was, was it, um, not Cuban dissidents, yeah. Was it, um, was it his own government? Was it LBJ? All of these things. What we, what, what, what we understand and understood and understand to this day is that the official story is laughable in the extreme. He was murdered by a conspiracy. Incidentally, uh, George Bush Sr., Grandpappy Bush, no, not Grandpappy Bush, Daddy Bush, um, George Bush Sr., yeah, the president before Bill Clinton, was a CIA operative in 1963. He was in Dallas, yet he maintained to his dying day that he couldn't remember exactly where he was on November the 22nd, 1963, making him the only person in the world who was alive at the time who doesn't know where he was when JFK was murdered. I would say it's pretty similar. Uh, anybody who was cognizant in 2001, anybody who was in their early teens and onwards, everybody knows where they were when September the 11th was, uh, well, sorry, when the attacks, in inverted commas, were happening. Everybody. But uh, George Bush Sr., said, uh, well, I, I have no recollection whatsoever where I was. Uh, could it be that uh, he was involved in the assassination? Maybe. But I, I offer absolutely no proof of that. So yeah, the official version of what happened on September the 11th is ridiculous. It's laughable. It's demonstrably um, provable what I have just said. It is, it is bunkum, junk science. And yet, it hasn't made any difference, has it really? Because it was used obviously, to legislate. Um, it was used to usher in ever more draconian laws and surveillance in the United States. It was used to justify uh, wars of aggression in the Middle East, as was the 7th of July incident in, in London. And even though, and I would argue that the 7th of July attack is also complete nonsense, the official story is easily dismissed. It, what difference has it made that we know this information? Knowing that information, how has it helped to prevent where uh, we are now? Uh, it, it certainly didn't pr prevent them from inventing a scandemic, a pandemic which, 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 which never existed, and attempting to destroy so much of society and to reshape it as they have done. The lies about the climate. None of that knowledge about the fact that it could take out a president for whatever reason. Many reasons why they might have wanted rid of JFK. We've heard so many of them over the years that he was drawing down in Vietnam. Maybe he what? Maybe he wasn't. Maybe he was. Is that he wanted to take on the Federal Reserve? Maybe he did. Maybe he didn't. But they took him out, didn't they? The Irishman is an interesting Netflix film, but the book upon which it's based is absolutely fascinating and far far more detailed than the film itself. And in the book, the claim is made by the Irishman. Frank, what's his name? I've got to put that in there. He claims that he delivered the guns, didn't he? Now, he could have been bragging. Gangsters are not known to be the most truth truthful people uh, in the world, are they? But he, he claims, does uh, the man... Um, the book is called I Heard You Paint Houses, which I read. And it's about Frank Sheehan, mafia hitman, who hung around uh, Russell Buffalino, the Buffalino crime family, and also hung around Jimmy Hoffa. 
And in the book, he claims to have done two things. He claims to have shot Jimmy Hoffa dead um, at the behest of the mafia. Yes. And he also claims to have provided the guns for the assassination of JFK. And in the film, it's a brilliantly made film. Scorsese's um, maybe maybe the last great film maybe, maybe he'll make. They use all manner of techniques to make Pacino and to make De Niro and Pesci look much younger in certain scenes than they actually are. But really, really good stuff. So um, we've known about this stuff for years and it hasn't really helped. And that's a depressing note, really, isn't it? Depressing thing uh, for me to say to you today. But yeah, 20 years ago, 22 years ago, I was broadcasting about it. Even now, we didn't leave the station until around 9 p.m. that night. We got back from our 10 a.m. to 12 noon show. We went for lunch, we came back, and then we took over the schedule and we scrambled and scrambled and scrambled to get in touch with Irish people we knew in New York, contacts we had through the radio to come on and paint the picture for us as to what was going on in New York. And in the days following September the 11th, we basically parroted the media narrative. Namely, that the entire thing was orchestrated by Osama bin Laden, who may very well, please do not laugh. I'm not saying this is true. He may very well have been dead himself at that time because he was gravely ill and he had been visited by somebody from the CIA uh, a couple of years earlier when he was on dialysis in a hospital in Pakistan, I think. But again, I'm not reading notes here. I'm doing this off the top of my head. It was written about in the New York Times um, a couple of months after September the 11th that he was believed uh, to have died, known to have died. Of course, some years later, SEAL Team 6, I think it was, would claim that they stormed a compound uh, in Pakistan, was it? And that they murdered Osama bin Laden and gave him a burial at sea. Complete bollocks, of course, as, as, as most things are. So I've rambled on now for about a half an hour and told you nothing that you didn't know already, but that's how it goes sometimes. Uh, join me on the show tomorrow at 5 o'clock UK time. Thank you for your messages, by the way. You are opining. You, you are opining. Adam says, it's simple, Richie. It was Marilyn Monroe that shot JFK. It's going to come out soon. Fantastic. And Rob says, the JFK documentary is called JFK to 9-11. Everything is a rich man's trick. Is it, Rob? Because that doesn't ring a bell. The one I saw about the shooting coming from the street level was definitely on the National Geographic, but maybe it is the one you're speaking about. And G-Man makes a very good point. I'm still surprised that so many people today have never heard of Tower 7, exactly. Uh, the tower that never collapsed. Uh, sorry, the tower that did collapse despite not being hit by anything. As they said, it was hit by debris, didn't they? And the tower which was announced as having collapsed by the BBC, while it was clearly standing behind the young woman who was making the announcement utterly bizarre. And of course, Tower 7 uh, contained documentation, files and files and files pertaining to SEC investigations into some very powerful people. That's the Securities and Exchange Commission. 
it gets curiouser and curiouser, doesn't it? Listen, that's been today's show. Thousand thanks to Stuart Waiton for coming on earlier on. Uh, sorry for the no-show in R2. There's nothing I can do about that. As you well know, this is live radio. Speak tomorrow. Until then, I don't care how many times we hear Shays Long. It's brilliant. And I know you love it as much as I do. Hasta pronto. Speak tomorrow. Bye now. Mommy.